Our scripture for today, uh, as Wes already referred to, is uh, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verses 1 through 12. Blessed are. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed. Um, the, the title for my sermon today is Eyes for the Truth. And in, in almost every athletic event, your eyes matter a lot. Now, there, there are individuals that can perform some athletic events that are blind, uh, which is just amazing in some cases. But eyes definitely help. Um, a focused view, a clear view of what... Uh, is in front of you, what your hands and your body is supposed to be doing. So how many of you have heard the phrase, keep your eye on the ball? Okay, baseball and softball, main things there. How about keep your eyes on the rim? Basketball. How about keep your eyes on the arrow? I'm looking at AJ, newcomer, bowling, arrows in the lanes. There, there's different things about you know, athletics where we're encouraged and we're taught, keep your eyes here. Uh, for, for keep your eyes on the ball with baseball, softball, you know, hitting a ball, feeling a ball, it helps if your eyes track the ball. It helps. Uh, for eyes on the rim, um, I can remember a basketball player that we had at Northwood that when he would go to shoot, his eyes would be on the rim until... He started to move his hand to shoot the ball, and all of a sudden, his eyes went to track the ball. Uh, he, he could shoot better when his eyes stayed on the rim, on the target. And if you've been bowling, about 15 feet down the lanes, have you noticed those, the arrows there? Those arrows help you aim where you want the ball to go, so that in the end, it ends up where you want it to be. So our eyes matter. Focus of eyes. Proper target for our eyes. Gives better guidance, gives better balance. Um, one of the things, if, if you've watched basketball players, there are many basketball players that anymore will take shots that are off balance, especially in the lane. Watch their eyes. If they get bumped and they're off balance when they go to shoot, 
if they drop their eyes and just throw the ball up into the rim, it's probably not going in. But as a player is falling to the ground, if the eyes stay on the rim, they're pretty good. The eyes stay on the rim, even as they're falling. Where are our eyes? So we've, we've taken time to remember our loved ones today. We remember them with fondness, with love, with sadness. We miss them. But I'm also confident we remember their faithful walk with Christ. We remember wise words that they may have shared with us. We remember how they conducted themselves, how they lived their life. And those characteristics, those characteristics are what hopefully influence us as we're encouraged and challenged within our own faith. And many of those that are still alive, not, not just those that have passed on, but those that are still alive, hopefully are encouraging and challenging us by their walk and faith. So what do they do? What do they say? What is it that we're looking to see? What is it that we're observing? What are we hoping to be influenced by? So the question I have is, where are our eyes? And I believe the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount have some common themes. One common theme is a sense of humility, a trusting in God, not in self, not, not in what I know, but a trusting in God. There's also a, a purity, a seeking of truth, not being led astray, not being distracted to other things. Each verse refers to those that are blessed. Uh, the Greek word makarios is used here, and it refers to being in a blessed, happy, and enviable state. Uh, gotquestions.org explains makarios as being a blessedness that is a deep, abiding, unshakable joy rooted in the, in the assurance of God's blessing. And so just a quick look at each of the eight statements uh, in the Beatitudes. First of all, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, being poor in spirit isn't necessarily mentioning or referring to being sad. It's, it's a recognition of our own fallacy uh, because of our sinful nature, our tendency for our flesh to fail. We recognize we're not worthy of God's love simply because of what we do. Uh, but he died for us. Through that death and resurrection, we're saved. And so we're humble, recognizing that inability to save ourselves. We're poor in spirit. We recognize our fallacies. But we're thankful for that gift. Second, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, and the mourning here again is not necessarily specifically a sadness for a loss. It can be. But if there's mourning, it's very similar to being poor in spirit. We're recognizing a bit of who we are, our sinful nature, brokenness, but comforted and encouraged by loving and a forgiving Jesus Christ. Washed away our sins, made us worthy of being saved. He has redeemed us. And so we mourn for our powerlessness as we seek his heart, knowing that it's his power that saves us. Not, not our own. Third, 
lesser of the meek. And I, this one's pretty straightforward. Um, the Greek word praeus refers to a mildness, a gentleness of spirit, and humility. And I want to use the word gentleness here. Uh, one of the best examples that I've heard a number of years ago for gentleness is envisioning a, an elephant, a big, strong, heavy elephant, taking its trunk and reaching down, and if you can envision just these flowers here, carefully, softly, picking up a stem and lifting it out. That definition of gentleness is an elephant that could crush everything here, but chooses not to. That's gentleness. And the same idea, similarly for meekness, refers to somebody that may have all the power in the world to dominate, to control whatever, but humbles themselves, lowers themselves, to relate. That's a meekness. That sounds like Jesus at the cross, humbling himself, being meek, being mild, giving of himself in that nature. Fourth, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to hunger and thirst after anything is a desire. Uh, you, you're, you're you have a burning desire if you're hungering and thirsting, seeking a goal, seeking some type of understanding. And in this case, having a desire to know what is right, righteousness, what is proper, what is godly, what is true. And, and if you're doing that, it takes time, it takes effort to identify and find what is right. And God promises, blessed is that individual who is seeking that. They will find it. They will be filled, is the promise here. Fifth, blessed are the merciful. And being merciful is an intentional desire, an intentional decision to forgive and to show compassion. And very likely where it has no rhyme nor reason. Somebody made a mistake. They deserve punishment. Are we merciful? And many times, if, if something goes wrong, um, you know, especially in our, in our culture, we, we call for accountability. And accountability is needed. But even as we call for accountability, can we be merciful and loving as that happens? God has forgiven us our sins. That is freedom that he has given us. And so let us extend that same forgiveness and mercy to those around us. Sixth, blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, this past October, uh, one of my sermons, we were referring to the ten lepers. And I used the word that's used here, katharos, being cleansed, being pure, being spotless, blameless. And for the lepers, that was more of an exterior Scenario that the skin was cured, but even in that sermon, we talked about what does that mean to be pure, pure in heart. Uh, when Samuel was looking for a king and he was taking a look at Jesse's sons, um, God said, Well, okay, Samuel, keep in this mind, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 
So God is looking at our hearts. God is blessing those who are internally clean and pure. So is my heart clean and pure? Bitterness, envy, pride, evil thoughts, desires, but only God can help keep my heart pure. It's not on my own account, but God providing that strength. Seventh, blessed are the peacemakers. And the challenge here is making peace is not just a matter of avoiding war, avoiding fighting and arguments. Being a peacemaker, I think, is a matter of knowing our identity in Christ. And that provides peace. I know who I am in Christ. And if I know that, then the stresses of the world, the things that... uh, I'm afraid we'll start to remove my value in this world, uh, reduce my stature. I don't worry about those because I'm at peace with who I am in Christ. And, And I think real peace is found in claiming that relationship and value with God above and beyond others. Real peace allows us to value and extend peace then to our neighbor and better recognize their needs above ourselves. And that's not always easy. But that's what peacemakers do. And finally, the eighth one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In John 16, 33, Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And later in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, verses 38 through 41 of Matthew 5. Jesus taught, he said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And, and, And there's different ways that we can be persecuted. You know, we read of stories overseas where there's severe persecution. But if my feelings get hurt, I can feel persecuted. Am I willing to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ? Am I willing to be disadvantaged, to be shorted, maybe because of what I believe and maybe some business interactions that I'm not going to enter into? That's being shorted and disadvantaged in our world, in our culture. Not necessarily severe persecution, but I'm disadvantaged in that. So am I willing to do that for what I believe? Others may take advantage. I'm not going to. I'm going to remain pure in word and deed. And in in listing of all these eight Beatitudes, we, we read and see the sense of humility, placing others and God above ourselves. And the individuals leading those, that life lead with those characteristics, those are the ones that are blessed. And the individuals that we look to who have had influence in our faith, I think those are the characteristics that we have seen those are many of the characteristics that they have. 
Those are the examples. And that's what we want to be following. Now, Hebrews 11 is known as the faith chapter. And I know many of you are familiar with that. The list of many of the Old Testament forefathers who by faith obeyed and followed God. Uh, in this chapter, there, there's 16 individuals that are specifically named. Uh, Abel, Enoch, and Noah are the first three, and then it continues on. But 16 specific individuals named. And then there's also additional persons. Moses' parents, the children of Israel who walked through the Red Sea with Moses, the people who marched with Joshua around the uh, town of Jericho and the walls fell, the prophets. And then near the end it says, the others who were tortured, imprisoned, and put to death for holding true to their faith in God. Those are individuals who gave us examples of how to walk in faith. In the New Testament, we can also look to examples from Jesus' mother Mary, John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, all walking in faith. And then following in the footsteps of those mentioned in the Bible, here are some early church leaders who faithfully preached the word of God. Uh, you may have heard some of these names before. Ignatius of Antioch lived from A.D. 35 to 110. Polycarp of Smyrna from 70 to 155. Justin Martyr from 100 to 165. Arrhenius of Lyons 125 to 200. These would have been individuals that have written some things, have written letters following teachings of Paul, following the teachings of Jesus. They walked in faith. And even a listing of some more modern faithful followers of Christ. R.C. Sproul, C.S. Lewis, Corey Tenboom. Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, Oz Guinness, and to that list, those that we remember today. Uh, to that list, regardless of whether they are here with us today or not, your, your mom, your dad, your grandfather, your grandmother, your aunt, your uncle, a Sunday school teacher that you can remember from years ago. Maybe your Sunday school teacher today. Your Bible study partner. Who else is walking faithfully with God that encourages you, that challenges you? Those are individuals that we are thankful for. It is helpful to have individuals leading godly lives around us. But as we think of all of those individuals, whether they have passed, whether they're the Old Testament prophets, the, the New Testament individuals, I ask this question again, where are our eyes? Because if our eyes are on those individuals, our eyes aren't quite properly focused. 
Because those individuals are human. They're fallible. They do and did make mistakes. And I would almost guarantee that whoever might be on your mind, they're going to freely admit that they're not perfect. And that's actually part of why they're good examples to follow and to remember that the proper focusing of our eyes is upon the one who was and is perfect. The one who gave himself up on the cross to die for our sins. Jesus Christ is where our eyes need to be. God is where our guidance comes from. Not from man's wisdom, but from his. But we do that in fellowship together. For all those individuals that we can think of and that that I even listed, um, here's a question. Where do you think their eyes were? Their eyes were focused on their Savior, God, the Son of Man. Their eyes were focused upon and reading the Holy Word, reading Scripture. Their eyes were focused upon finding and identifying and seeking the way, the truth, and the life, as should ours. And so it's a challenge, but it's an encouragement to follow in those footsteps. Um, This past Monday, uh, the Breakpoint Daily blog that I I get from the Colson Center was titled, Repenting of Elitism and Chronological Snobbery. Um, And I'm going to read a statement here. Within the article... Uh, Michael Clary is an evangelical pastor from Cincinnati that he wrote this. There once was a certain kind of evangelical Christian I felt free to make fun of. Conservative, uneducated, backwoods fundies who still read the King James Version. They lacked the theological sophistication and cultural insight I had acquired while doing campus ministry and studying at seminary. I would not have admitted at this, time, or this at the time, but deep down I felt superior to my hometown people and their country religion. My ministry success was at least partly driven by a desire to separate myself from them and prove that I'm not one of those fundy Christians. But then it began to dawn on me. I was standing on the shoulders of giants. My grandfather was one of those country preachers. My great-grandfather was the same way. He only received a third-grade education. He planted a, deep church, or a, a, he planted a church deep in the hills of West Virginia and built a church building for it on his own property. He strayed, stayed true to the Lord and to his calling for 80 years. And here I was, three or four years into my new church plant, attracting a few hundred people, feeling like I'd accomplished something feeling superior to men like my grandfather and great-grandfather. So I repented. I repented of my arrogance. I repented of looking down on faithful, older Christians who had passed on a legacy to me, a recognition of there's some value in a third-grade education and trusting God, not my own understanding. And in the blog, John Stone Street from the Colson Center refers to our human tendency to engage in what is called chronological snobbery. 
modern day. J.I. Packer describes chronological snobbery as this, the assumption that what is newer is truer, only what is recent is decent, every shift of ground is a step forward, and every last word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. But there's also a warning within this blog about reverse chronological snobbery. And that's described as turning off our brains, choosing tradition over truth, rejecting in-depth training and formation in scripture and theology, or stubbornly refusing any new wind of change simply because it is new. So we honor our past, but we're honoring because it was based on following truth. And we continue to seek truth. Both times of snobbery that uh, were referred to here, the chronological, which values the new, the reverse chronological, which would be overvaluing the old, both of those would be based on a personal preference and a personal perspective. One preferring the old, one preferring the new. And our preference should be matching that of God. That which is true. That which is pure. Snobbery is not what God is calling us to. He's calling us to be faithful. Just as our forefathers we're committing themselves to be faithful. And faithfulness is based upon truth. And it takes time. It takes energy to discern together. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. He wants us to understand and know him. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us what God has given us to understand. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Following truth. We have a pretty good-sized backyard. It's about 100 yards deep. And a lot of times when I go to mow, um, I'll, I'll cut down through the middle and then just kind of work from there. And when I go to make that first cut, I don't look close around me for where I'm going to drive. There's a set of trees out behind, and I pick one tree. And that's what I'm driving toward. Now, I'm, I'm very aware of what's happening around me. I've, you know, we've got a bunch of mole problems in our backyard, so it's bumpy. But my eyes stay on the tree. That's my focus. And I think that's the focus that we want and need within our faith walk. We thank God for the faith of our fathers and mothers who have gone before us. We follow examples that they had, keeping in mind that what they were doing 
was walking faithfully with Jesus and God as their focus. That's what we continue to do. We worship the one who is truth. So keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep seeking his will in our lives individually, but as a community. And that takes time. That takes conversation. That takes discernment. But my eyes stay focused in following him. The way, the truth, and the life.